0: talk about the Sermon on the Mount but first I'm going to read our opening text which can be found in Matthew 4:23 through 55 5. this can be found obviously in the Bibles or in the insert in your bulletin Matthew 423 through55. 5, 5. Hear God's word and Jesus went throughout all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, from Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them saying blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth the word of the Lord well many of us are familiar with the Sermon on the Mount just about anybody whether you're religious or not has heard the term the Sermon on the Mount and this This Sermon on the Mount refers to the section in the Gospel of Matthew, uh, chapters 5 through 7, when Jesus goes up on a hill and his disciples come to him and he teaches them uh, these variety of prescriptions. And and in the Sermon on the Mount, we we get a lot of the foundational teaching of the Gospel. You know, such as you have heard that it is said to you that uh, anyone who kills is in danger of hell, but I say to you, if you're even so much as angry as your brother, it's the same as killing him. Or you have heard that it is said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, anyone who has lust in his heart toward a woman or man has committed adultery to, uh, against them in her heart, in their heart. In the Sermon on the Mount, we hear the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. So we get this core, this fantastic teaching uh, from Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. But we have to ask ourselves the question, what exactly is this Sermon on the Mount? Why did Jesus give it? I mean, it's clear there's some parallels that can be drawn between Jesus' Sermon on the Mount and Moses. Remember Moses, he got Israel, they go to Mount Sinai. Moses goes up, he gets the Ten Commandments, and he gives them to the people. Is the the Sermon on the Mount supposed to be some sort of new set of Ten Commandments, a new set of prescriptives? Some people treat it as that way. It was Harry S. Truman that said, I do not believe there is a problem in this country or the world today which could not be settled if approached through the teaching of the Sermon on the Mount. If, If we just use the Sermon on the Mount, we would be able to get along. We would be able to solve the problems of the world. But the Sermon on the Mount doesn't quite sit right with us in that regard. It actually was the author, Kurt Vonnegut, who said, For some reason, the most vocal Christians among us never mention the Beatitudes. But often with tears in their eyes, they demand that the Ten Commandments be posted in public buildings. And of course, that's Moses, not Jesus. I haven't heard one of them demand that the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, be posted anywhere. Blessed are the merciful in a courtroom. Blessed are the peacemakers in the Pentagon. Give me a break. What are we supposed to do with the Sermon on the Mount? Where are we supposed to put it in our lives? It's only when we understand what Jesus was really trying to communicate to us that we can understand the Sermon on the Mount. Because the Sermon on the Mount is more than a prescription of how to live, the Sermon on the Mount is a description of a new life, of new life in the kingdom. It's a description of kingdom life in a fallen world. See, Jesus' central message when he came to earth was this, that the kingdom is at hand. Matthew 4, 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so he went throughout Galilee, in fact, I read this from Matthew four twenty three, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. So to Jesus, some kingdom, this kingdom has come and appeared in the world. But it's like no other kingdom that we've ever seen, for it doesn't have an army. It has no boundaries. It transcends space and time. It takes up residence not in a geographic locality, but rather in the hearts and minds of men. And this kingdom, unlike other kingdoms, doesn't reform men from the outside in. It rather transforms them from the inside out. And this kingdom is advancing. It's growing and taking ground in the lives of people as the gospel is preached. And so the Sermon on the Mount is not a prescriptive on how to enter into the kingdom. It's a description of how one lives in light of the kingdom that has entered us. It's a description of how we live out this kingdom life in a fallen world. As such, as we work through the Sermon on the Mount, we'll discover that Jesus is constantly comparing and contrasting the kingdom of God and the kingdom of the world. Because they're two different worlds with two different masters, two different powers, two different ways to live. As we work through the Sermon on the Mount, you'll discover that Jesus begins with the general and moves to the specific. In the beginning, he starts with these Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. You see, the Beatitudes are a picture of the character of those in the kingdom. They're a picture of the life that's put inside of us and the life that we are uh, being transformed into living, almost like facets on a diamond. And if we want to see the ultimate, final consummation of the kingdom of God in the hearts of man, all we need to do is look at Jesus, for he is the one who perfectly mirrors the Beatitudes.
1: And the rest of the
0: Sermon on the Mount, after we get through the Beatitudes, is simply taking those Beatitudes and applying them to specific situations. So today we're going to look at these first three Beatitudes because they're foundational to the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. And the key thing that these first three Beatitudes, which I read in the scripture here, deal with is our fundamental relationship between God and man. Because when we understand our relationship to God, when we put ourselves in our proper place, when we measure ourselves correctly against God, then we will be able to measure ourselves correctly against Him. So let's do that. Let's look at these three Beatitudes. The first being, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Notice the word that's used here, blessed, in the Greek makarios is the word, which could just as easily have been translated happy. But if you open up the Bible, you won't see happy. You'll always see blessed. Because it's not dealing with how we feel, okay? This isn't a self-help talk. If you do these things, you will be happy. Rather, it's a talk about how God feels about you. Blessed are them. It's the blessing that God gives to people. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Now notice, first of all, it doesn't say blessed are the poor. It says, Blessed are the poor in spirit. This is a text that often liberation theologists, uh, theologians, will use. Blessed are the poor. Now, he's not talking about finances. He's talking about something different. He's talking about poverty of spirit. Spiritual poverty. But what is spiritual poverty? It's really humility. It's looking at God who is above and then looking at ourselves and realizing how spiritually poor we are how bankrupt we are in our spirits now this isn't a new concept to god because throughout the entire bible we see god having this attitude toward those who are humbled before him listen to isaiah 57:15 for thus says the one who is high and lifted up who inhabits eternity whose name is holy i dwell in the high and holy place and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the hearts of the contrite. See, so he dwells in the highest of places, and yet he also dwells with the lowest of people.
1: Isaiah 66, 1, Thus says the Lord,
0: Heaven is my throne, and earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me, and what is the place of my rest? All things my hand is made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one to whom I will look, he who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. Once again, the highest of the highest and those who are humble and contrite in spirit. Why are these people humble and contrite? The clue here is at this last part, that they tremble at his word. You see, they've looked at God, they've looked at who he is as perfect righteousness and his holiness and his power and his infinite glory and they've realized that they don't measure up. See they've realized that there's only one standard that we should measure ourselves against. And that is the, that is God himself because we are made in the image of God. He is the archetype. We are the ectype. He is our measuring stick. And when we use God and ourselves as the measuring stick, we realize that there is an infinite gap between him and us. Well, truth of the matter is we all use measuring sticks, don't we, to measure ourselves against other things. I even brought up my handy dandy measuring stick right here. I built a treehouse with this measuring stick. I'm very proud of myself, by the way. <laughs> you should not seen the first tree But we all have measuring sticks, don't we? If you're a woman and you measure yourself by the magazine covers of the world. You measure yourself by your beauty. You're constantly comparing yourself against the ideal that the world has given you. Or you're comparing yourself to other people out there, and you're sort of working this measurement to decide, do I measure up or not? Or maybe you're a career person, and you measure yourself by your accomplishments, how far you've achieved, what status you have in your company. And you're doing pretty well, and so you've got a good measurement stick, and then along comes someone who's younger than you, who has achieved greater status than you, and all of a sudden you find yourself being deficient, lower, if you will, in standing. We all have measuring sticks by which we are uh, pride or humbled by. But there's only one measuring stick that God cares about. There's only one true measuring stick that we need to use to measure ourselves, and that's God. Something happens when we humble ourselves and measure ourselves against God. It was Isaiah who said these things when he did this, when he measured himself against God in Isaiah 6, that in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple, and above him stood the seraphim, and they had wings and Covered And they were singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And notice Isaiah's response. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. See, he measured himself against God, and he realized, oh no, I don't make the cut at all. Remember Peter in the New Testament? You know, Peter apparently was this big guy, you know, small businessman, he was a fisherman. And Jesus asked to use his boat, so, you know, they went out on the water and Jesus was teaching the people from the boat. And then he asked Peter, hey, go ahead and let's set out and lay down your nets. Throw down your nets for a catch. Peter's really not buying it because he's a fisherman and you don't fish in the middle of the day. But he does so. And it says that the fish began to jump into the nets so much that the boat began to sink. And it was there when Peter realized who was in his boat. And he looked at God, and he looked at himself, and his response was, Go away from me, for I am a sinful man. See, when we see ourselves correctly, it leads us to a poverty of spirit. There's no greater discrepancy between the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God in this regard, is there? It's all about self-image, isn't it? If you have a poor self-image, you've got to change that around. The issues of self-esteem, look, if you're down on yourself, you gotta, you got to get up. you got to think positive. The power of positive thinking. We spent over $11 billion last year on self-help, uh, different things, teaching, books, books, conferences in order to sort of build ourselves up, but the problem is mankind has lost his bearing because we've lost our standard. The result is we are our own gods, but God says what will happen if we do that, for pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before the fall. Well, I don't know if you saw the news this week, but Rod Blagovich former governor of Illinois began his 14 year sentence in a Colorado state prison. Remember the story on Blago, as they call him. He was the governor of Illinois, and he was indicted and convicted on 18 charges of corruption, one of which was trying to sell the vacancy left by Obama for to the highest bidder. But Blagovich is a very interesting character. To, To the end, Logovich insists that he did nothing wrong in fact before the, 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 the trial he, he made the, the public circuit on TV you know, Saturday Night Live David Letterman protesting his innocence this is what he said on, on Letterman I'd like your listeners to know Dave and everybody in Illinois and anyone else who's listening that I will be vindicated I did nothing wrong I did nothing wrong and I will have an opportunity to be able to go into court to prove that I did nothing wrong. The verdict was unanimous that Blyeridge did something wrong. Think about it, here was a man who had everything. Governor of Illinois, okay? beautiful wife, two young kids, but it wasn't enough because his measurement stick was against the little man and he wanted to continue to grow. And grow and grow. And so what was bottom into the downfall? Pride. Comparison, not to God, but to himself. Hey, my question for you today is: what is your standard? What's the ruler that you're using to measure yourself? How are you measuring up? Is it your reputation? I'm a good guy, good gal, I got a good name in the community. Maybe it's your accomplishments. Look at all the things that I've done. Mike, I'm doing pretty good. There's only one stick, and that is the stick of God. And so we must compare ourselves only to him. We must use his measuring stick because he has given one. It's his worth. The standard by which we know what God is, who God is and what God requires of us. And so we must face our maker in his word and examine ourselves in light of what God calls us to do and be. We must also be still. Psalm 46.10 says it this way, be still and know that I am God. See, there's something in us that just totally shirts this concept of standing before God. And so we fill our life with things, moving from place to place iPod to iPod, iPad to TV, moving around so we don't ever have to contemplate the fact that we need to be still and know that I am God. Working on our religious resume, we must be still and know that I am God. Because here's the beauty, the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. God isn't looking for perfect people, quite the opposite. He's looking for humble and contrite people, for those who don't make the cut, but they understand that they don't. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Well, this moves me to the second beatitude. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. You know, these these beatitudes, they're very strange, frankly. You know, you could just as easily have translated this, happy are the unhappy. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. I mean, mourning doesn't seem to make sense with Christianity, right? Aren't we advocated to rejoice in the Lord? Come before Him with singing. Rejoice and celebrate. Alleluia. Praise the Lord. And as Christians, should we not be the happiest people on the face of the earth? Knowing salvation, knowing what our future is about? And yet, blessed are those who mourn. How can we understand this? Why are we blessed if we mourn? Well, this beatitude is tied closely to the first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit. Because there's a big difference between confession and contrition. See, it's one thing to acknowledge my faults, it's another to mourn them. I know plenty of people, myself included, who understand that we're not perfect. But you know, it's a little bit different if it bothers us, that we're not living up to God's standard. You see, blessed are those who mourn. This is the emotional counterpart to those who are poor in spirit. The proud do not mourn. An oracle, this is Isaiah 36, an oracle is within my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. There is no fear of God before his eyes, for in his own eyes he flatters himself too much to detect or hate his sin. Jesus tells this great story of these two guys who went to the temple. I don't know if you remember it, the tax collector and the Pharisee. Remember, this is Luke 18. It says this, that to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray. Almost sounds like a joke, doesn't it? (laughs) Two men went up to the temple. One a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you, I am not like other men. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even this tax collector. I fast twice a week and give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. See, this this parable turns religion on its head. The Pharisee, he comes with his accomplishments, his fasting, his prayer, his religious life. But the problem is he's using the wrong measuring stick. I thank you that I'm not like robbers or evildoers, or in fact, even this tax collector who's down here. The result is pride, spiritual arrogance. But the tax collector, he had nothing to bring to the temple, did he? The the, the facade was off. All he could do was bring himself. And as a result, he realized the separation between God and him, and he wouldn't even look up at him. He beat his breast and said, God have mercy on me, a sinner. Now he could be faking it, but I don't think so. I think he realized it's poverty of spirit. The result was he was the one who went home justified before God and not the other. Once again, this parable, this this beatitude is against the entire principle of the world. The world says don't mourn for your shortcomings. Minimalize them. In fact, much of the counseling in the world today is dealing with minimalizing our shortcomings. And if you can't minimize them, rationalize them. Because of your parents that you're like this, It's because of the world or the society that you've been put in. It's not your fault, it's somebody else's fault. If we can't rationalize them, we can shift them. We can shift the blame to somebody else for the problems and shortcomings in our life. But the Bible says something completely different doesn't say minimalize them or rationalize them it says mourn them Now there is such a thing as Christian tears tears that are shed for the right reason. We're supposed to mourn our own sin and we're also supposed to mourn the sin of the world. love that picture of Jesus who went to the tomb of Lazarus remember his friend Lazarus who died he was in the tomb? Jesus goes and he sees the place where they laid him. And Jesus wept. Why did Jesus weep? He knew he was going to raise him. He even said he was going to raise them. He wept at the sin of the world. The sin of the world, that would cause death and destruction. And he, was, he wept that the world was so screwed up. That's exactly the reason that Jesus came. Because blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. When Jesus came, his first sermon that he gave in the synagogue, when he announced his ministry, the the scroll of Isaiah was given to him. And he read, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to preach the good news to the kingdom. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom from the darkness, release for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. See, the Lord came to comfort those who mourn. Now in this world as the kingdom advances and one day there will be no more mourning, no more crying. The Bible says in Revelation 21, he will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, For the old order of things has passed away. So do we mourn for sin? My wife and I remember in the 90s we went to see a movie, which I will probably never go to see again. It's called Life is Beautiful. Remember that movie with the Italian guy, that funny little Italian guy, Roberto Benigni? And he plays this Italian Jew, and he falls in love with this woman, uh, and they go ahead and they get married, and they have a little boy. And uh, this is right during the times of of, uh, uh, the Nazis. So the Nazis come in, and they subject the Jews to this, this horrible treatment, and they load them up, and they take them to the concentration camp. And Benigni is faced with, how do I... Take care of my son in the midst of this difficulty. And so he he constructs this elaborate game with this little boy, convincing the little boy that this is all a sham. It's all a game. And he has to act a certain way, that the soldiers are actually playing. And if he hides and stays out of the path of these people, that he gains points. And if, if he mourns or complains, he loses points. And whoever gets to a 1,000 points gets a free tank. That was what Benini said. And, and, and so the entire movie is about Benini taking these horrible situations and interpreting them in light of this game, making trying to make the best of it. And in the end, uh, the, the boy is freed and, and, and the father uh, ends up dying. And uh, I tell you the story of this movie not so much uh, so that you would know the movie, but that you would know my reaction to it. Because I I was so overcome by this movie and just the horror of the war that I walked out, I got in the car with my wife, and I wept uncontrollably, like a baby, because of the sin of the world and how screwed up the world is. Have you ever wept for the sin of the world? Have you ever wept for the sin of yourself? I don't do it often enough. But that's the spirit that God is talking about here. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. How do we do that? How do we become those type of people? Well, remember, this is the emotional counterpart to the first part. Until we recognize that we're poor in spirit, we cannot mourn. And so we must go to the Father. We must go to his yardstick and examine our life daily in light of the scriptures. There we begin to get a picture of the infinitely holy God and our sinful selves. The second thing we must do is confess. Having an active confession life. Part of our time of going to prayer is going to the Lord in confession. Confession is as part of our relationship with God as anything else. Taking time to examine my life. To confess to God when I come up short, to apologize, to mourn. See, if we don't do that, if we don't invite God into the inner recesses of our heart to examine us, we will grow hard to Him. I think sometimes the reasons that we don't come to God is because there's this barrier that's been built up between Him and us because we don't want to acknowledge the fact that we're screwed up. There's really only two two types of people in the world. Those who are screwed up and those who know they are screwed up. And the Christian knows that he is screwed up more than anyone. So when we go to the Lord and we say, show me, Lord. Put a flashlight on my heart. Don't minimize. Then we won't minimize our posture. We'll simply be there. Maybe the greatest prayer you can ask uh, to the Lord today is, Lord, break my heart. For the things that break your heart. The Lord will honor that prayer. Blessed are those who mourn. For they will be comforted. This brings me to my last one. Blessed are the meek. For they will inherit the earth. Okay another crazy one. Crazy but That doesn't make any sense. Blessed are the meek. For they will inherit the earth. Everybody knows meek doesn't inherit the earth. At least in the kingdom of the world right. Might makes right got kind of to raise yourself up if you want to inherit the earth. Well, this one's a little bit different because the first two deal with our relationship with God. This one still deals with our relationship with God, but it flows into our relationship with others. What is meekness? You read a bunch of dictionaries on meekness. You'll hear some definitions like this. One who is deficient in spirit and courage. One who is not strong. But weak, meekness is not weakness. Not the biblical version of meekness and means. Meekness is not weakness. Jesus was anything but weak. As he raised the dead. And he turned over the tables. And he stood up to the entire Roman army. Meekness is not weakness. Meekness is also not niceness. Okay, that's a personality trait. Some of you were born with it. I was not. <laughs> meekness is not niceness. You can be nice. You can be quiet and not have a meek spirit. Now meekness is something different. Meekness is one who has abdicated his rights before God and man. It's one who seeing himself aright realizes that he has no standing before God and therefore he has no standing before men. He's not better than anyone else because his measuring stick is God not man. He has no inherent right to be treated better. A meek man or woman comes to see that they have no rights, that they have no way to justify themselves, that they are not the center of the universe, that God is. And as a result, the meek person is done with themselves. But the beauty of a meek person is this that they no longer need to justify themselves because their measuring stick is God, not other people. They're not posing or posturing, when people come, when somebody comes and puts you down, somebody cheats you, the meek person can absorb that. The not meek person, the proud person, rears up. How dare they? The meek person can deal with life situations in their proper context, whether prosperity or poverty or the pressures of the world, because they've thrown out all the other measurement sticks. And they only are looking to one. Meekness is an example of kingdom life. It's not natural for man. It's a process. Remember Moses? You know, there's the two people. The meekest men on the earth were also the two greatest people. Moses and Jesus. Our Numbers said that Moses was the meekest man on the earth. He wasn't that way in the beginning, was he? Yeah, he raised his son in Pharaoh's house realizing he was a Jew. He wanted to liberate the Jews. So he went out and he killed an Egyptian. He expected the people to rise up and follow him as they overtook uh, Pharaoh. But the Jews didn't believe in him. The Hebrews and the Egyptians threw him out and he ran with his tail between his legs to the desert. And for the next 40 years, he spent time realizing that he was a nobody, becoming meek, becoming broken and it was only then when he was meek that he was ready to be used by God because how else were you going to put up with the suffering of 600,000 Israelites for 40 years (laughs) he truly was a meek man you know this word meek in Latin is a very interesting word it means accustomed to the hand deals with the taming of wild animals when you are breaking in an animal See, the goal when you're breaking a horse is not to break the horse's spirit. The goal is to bring that spirit under control, to make the stallion accustomed to the hand. There was a horse trainer in Texas, they once asked the question of what are the qualities of a meek horse? And this horse trainer in Texas, he said this, first, power under control. Once broken, a good horse doesn't require much correction. He has learned to accept the reins of his master, and a gentle tug is all that is needed to urge him in the direction intended. The training process is not meant to remove the strength, but rather channel his energy, so he is able to jump higher, run faster, and work harder. Second quality of meekness, learning the master's mind. A broken horse and a master develop a special relationship After years of working together, the horse can know what the master wants and do it even when the master isn't asking him. Thirdly, loyalty. The meek horse has an elevated sense of loyalty and commitment. In the days of the Wild West and the Pony Express, the lives of the mail carriers depended on the horses that they rode. And these horses were so committed to the mission of their master that they would literally run themselves to death if necessary to accomplish the mission. Meekness, power under control. Let me finish with this thought, my friends. Have you learned meekness before the Lord? When the Lord just gives you a gentle command, a gentle touch, do you move in the right direction? Or does he have to pull on the reins to even get you to listen? Are you docile in his hands or wild and unruly? How about with people? How do you respond when people infringe on your rights? Question your motives? Put you down? Do you instantly rear up, ready to assert yourself? Or are you accustomed to the hand of your Lord, your only true measure to stick? So we must learn to be accustomed to the hand of the Lord. It starts when we become poor in spirit. It starts with you and me bowing our head to our Master. Have you done this? starts with us obeying the commands of our Lord. Just a gentle touch. The Texas course trainer said this is a process. It happens over time. The most important thing is this, my friends. That we must depend on Christ. Because without Christ, we are natural. We will follow the kingdom of the world. We don't want to submit, but Christ wants to submit. And he is in us, and we are in him. We don't want to mourn, but Christ is the one who is truly poor in spirit. Take my yoke upon you and mourn for me, for I am gentle, meek, and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your soul. It's only when we measure ourselves correctly against God then we will be able to measure ourselves correctly against man. And by God's grace, we will. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you for your Beatitudes, for they are beautiful. They give us a picture of you, Jesus, the perfect man, the God-man. They give us a picture of who we were meant to be. And they give us a picture of the kingdom life that you have put put in us, that you are transforming us into. Lord, help us to submit to your breaking process, to look to you to measure our lives against you and to bow the knee to humble ourselves to you, Lord, that we may be pliable, used in your hands, power under control, spirits who are chained. All of this we pray in Christ's name, amen.